This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. During World War II, the Nazis embarked on a campaign to rid Europe of the Jewish people. Concentration camps submitted the Jews to unimaginable brutality, with millions being exterminated in the gas chambers. But despite all the odds, one man survived the so-called death camps, going on to reach the ripe old age of 101 this is his story, the story of Eddie Jaku. Today's episode continues the story of Eddie Jaku, so I strongly advise you to listen to part one first. So now, here is the conclusion of this remarkable man's story. During this time at the camp, Eddie was constantly scheming about how he could escape. He would scrounge through waste bins to find anything that he could use to his advantage. And then he was in luck when he found blunt hacksaws, which he ground down to make knives. He then found timber, which he carved and polished into handles for the knives. He was then able to sell them for food to the civilians who worked in the camps, such as the cooks and the drivers. His work became much sought after, and people even commissioned him to make things for them, such as rings or other jewellery. Eddie was determined to beat the odds and somehow survive the death camp, but others were not so inclined. They preferred death to being submitted to the brutal conditions, and the camp provided a very quick way to end their lives. It was surrounded by an electrified barbed wire fence, which many used to end their lives. But Eddie too had his bad days when he felt he couldn't go on. But Kurt, his friend, managed to stop him. He said, Without friendship, a human being is lost. A friend is someone who reminds you to feel alive. I survived Auschwitz because I owed it to my friend, Kurt, to survive. Having even just one good friend means the world takes on a new meaning. One good friend can be your entire world. The best balm for the soul is friendship. Eddie's expertise with engineering was to again give him an advantage. He was classified as an economically indispensable Jew. Yes, this was the actual terminology which was used. He understood this was due to his father, who always stressed the importance of a good education. 
He had said it was important for everyone to play their part for society to function properly. Eddie was then put to work in another factory, but it was the most difficult work so far. He produced the deadly gas used in the gas chambers, and his work there was to become very ironic. On three separate occasions, he was chosen and marched to the gas chambers, only to have the guards notice that he was one of the desirable Jews and his life was spared. The lack of food in the camp resulted in the health of prisoners declining. However, the indispensable Jews received an advantage over the others. They were given injections of vitamins and glucose to keep them healthy to work. But Eddie often found himself feeling guilty for receiving this special treatment over his fellow Jews. His thoughts while he worked constantly went to his parents and sister, who he now feared were gone as a result of his work in the factory. But one day he received a most wonderful gift. He found his sister also working in the factory. But according to the guard, his family had been killed in the gas chambers. So could it be possible that his father and mother were also alive? And this hope helped to keep him going. Daily life in the camp consisted of being beaten frequently by the guards and usually for no reason. But Eddie decided to fight back. After being hit and kicked and told to work harder, he turned to the guard and said, Have you got a soul? Have you got a heart? Why are you hitting me? Do you want to change places with me? I will take your clothes and food and we will see who works harder. But it wasn't only the guards that everyone had to be wary about. There were also prisoners who were traitors, becoming spies for the Nazis. They would be given food rewards for letting the guards know if the prisoners were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And of course, no one could judge them for this. It was just survival. And the prisoners themselves stole food from each other. But Eddie refused to turn on his fellow Jews saying, It was survival of the fittest, but not at someone else's expense. I never lost sight of what it was to be civilized. I knew that there would be no point surviving if I had to become an evil man to do it. I never hurt another prisoner. I never stole another man's bread. You see, food is not enough. There is no medicine for your morals. If your morals are gone, you go to So as seen so far, Eddie relied on friendships to get him through the war. And he also made another friend with a man who delivered food to the factory where he worked. He was a civilian, not a Nazi, and gave extra food to Eddie when he could. Not only that, but he also devised a plan for Eddie to escape. The food he delivered to the factory often came in big drums, and he saw a drum as a potential way for Eddie to escape. He set to work modifying a drum, attaching a chain to the inside of the lid. The daring plan was for Eddie to climb inside and pull the chain to seal himself inside. When the time was right, Eddie hid inside the drum, and the man put him on the back of his truck. When he gave a whistle, this would be the cue for Eddie to use his weight 
and push the drum over, hoping that it would roll off the truck. And it worked. Eddie found himself falling off the truck and rolling quickly over and over before coming to a stop against a tree. He was bruised and cut, but was free. But as ingenious as the plan had been, they had both forgotten one crucial detail. Eddie was still wearing his prison clothes. He then snuck away into a forest until he came to a cottage and he hoped that he would be able to find clothes there. A man entered the door, but upon seeing Eddie in a prison uniform, he quickly grabbed a gun and Eddie was shot in the leg as he tried to run away. He used his shirt to stop the bleeding, but that's when he had the realisation that without a shirt, he would raise suspicion. And he also came to the realisation that his injury was too bad to try to continue to walk to safety. So he felt he had no choice but to return back to the factory. He waited until the workers would be marching back to the camp and then quietly joined the queue. Given some of the Jews were traitors, he was certainly fortunate that no one told the guards. Back in camp, Eddie went to a fellow prisoner who was a doctor and asked him to remove the bullet. As the procedure would be extremely painful, they went to an isolated toilet where his screams were less likely to be heard. But to make sure, they waited until a nearby nun's convent rang a bell which was sounded at the same time each night. They hoped the bell would drown out Eddie's cries of pain. And yes, it was extremely painful, but Eddie's cries were not heard. Despite the deprivation of food, the workers in the factory were allowed to have a cup of coffee each morning, no doubt only because it benefited the Nazis so that the workers would work better. However, One morning, Eddie felt that his coffee tasted strange, so he asked the cook what was wrong with the coffee. He was told that they were instructed to add bromide to the coffee, which was used to castrate the men in an effort to exterminate the Jewish race. So after that, Eddie refused to drink coffee, but he knew of other men who had also survived the Holocaust but were not able to have children due to the coffee. Due to the conditions in the camp, head lice became rife amongst the prisoners. People found to have head lice caused their whole dormitory to be shut down and all the men in that dormitory were then gassed to death. So everyone was absolutely terrified of getting head lice. The prisoners also had their weight checked and anyone found to be too thin was also gassed, as they were no longer of any use. Despite what Eddie's body went through, starvation, being beaten, freezing cold, being wounded, he still survived and said later in life, I am still in awe of the human body and what it is capable of. I spent years making precision machinery, but I could not make a machine like the human body. It is the best machine ever made. My body kept me going, it kept me alive, and now it has kept me alive for more than 100 years. What a marvelous piece of machinery. Then, in early 1945, Eddie and the prisoners didn't know it yet, 
but the war was to end in a matter of months. The Nazis were staring down defeat, and those in charge of Auschwitz panicked, fearful that the atrocities they had perpetrated would be discovered. The prisoners were then marched out of all of the death camps that had existed. The Nazis planned to extinguish all signs of the camps by blowing them up. They marched the prisoners deeper into German territory, but it was to exact a heavy toll, killing some 15,000 prisoners due to the extreme winter conditions with temperatures 20 degrees Celsius below zero. The Nazis were merciless, shooting anyone who couldn't keep up or fell. This march came to be given the name the Death March. Those who made it found themselves taken to an abandoned building. Eddie and his friend Kurt had survived against all odds, but Kurt was in a bad state and Eddie knew that he would be shot due to his condition. Eddie was desperate to find somewhere that he could hide him. He managed to find a manhole in the ceiling which would make a good hiding spot. But to his surprise, there were other people already hiding in there. But he helped Kurt to climb up and join them. After spending the night, they continued marching the next day and eventually arrived at a train station where they were herded into open wagons in freezing conditions. One of the prisoners had been a tailor and had a plan to provide them with more warmth. He instructed everyone to take off their jackets and he then began to make them into a huge blanket. They all lay huddled together under the blanket, but it didn't take long for snow to completely cover them. But it was useful as they used it as water. As they travelled, some women would run alongside the train and throw loaves of bread to them. Eddie said, And once again, it showed me that there were still good people in the world. This knowledge was hope, and hope is the fuel that powers the body. The train finally brought them to another camp. Those prisoners in Eddie's wagon all survived, while many died in the other wagons. He put this down to their friendship, cooperation, and the hope that they clung onto. Eddie was then put in charge of transporting the dead to the crematorium in a handcart. He loaded them into the cart, but got a huge shock when one man suddenly spoke. He said, Please take the photo in my pocket. I was married three weeks ago. My wife is not Jewish. Tell her what happened. He was only 20 years old and I did as he wished. The Nazis also needed a toolmaker and Eddie informed them of his skills and he was then taken to work at an underground factory repairing gears. A sign was placed around his neck saying that he would be hung if he made any mistakes. And then one day he was taken to the man in charge of the factory and he feared the worse, that his work wasn't up to standard. Instead, he was asked about his father and it turned out that the man knew Eddie's father. They had both been prisoners of war together during World War I. He apologised for the situation Eddie was in, but was unable to have him released. Instead, he said, Eddie, I can't help you escape, but every day, when you come to work, you will find extra food. 
It's the least I can do. And the man was true to his word. Each day, Eddie found food hidden inside the machines he was repairing. Bread, porridge, milk, salami. But because his digestive system was so damaged, he could barely eat it. He resorted to putting extra water into the porridge to dilute it because the milk was just too rich. And he also couldn't give the food to the other prisoners either. So instead, he grinded the food in a machine to get rid of it. He said, Imagine, starving so badly, you could not eat. But the little extra kindness gave me new strength. The strength not to give up. By this time, Eddie and the other prisoners didn't know that the war would soon come to an end, but the signs were there. British and American aircraft were continuing a bombing campaign and once again the prisoners had to be moved. Eddie could see that the Nazis were staring down defeat and everyone had a foreboding feeling that they would all be killed because they had been witness to mass murder. So the uncertainty during this time made everyone extremely anxious. They continued marching on, and even some of the Nazi guards ran away during the night. Eddie was constantly looking for an opportunity to escape and noticed that there were large drainage pipes below the road. He also saw wooden barrels, and this gave him an idea. When the opportunity was right, he took the lids from two barrels and carried them with him as they marched. When they stopped somewhere to sit down, he made sure to sit on the lids to avoid detection. The other prisoners thought he was absolutely mad. And then one night, he carried out the rest of his plan. He ran down into a drain pipe and wedged the lids to each side of the drain as high as possible to avoid the water that was flowing through the pipe. Somehow, he was able to hold himself up and due to exhaustion, he was able to fall asleep. But when he woke in the morning, he was confronted with an astonishing scene. The wooden lids were riddled with bullets, 38 holes in one piece and 10 in the other. He found out later that the guards would shoot down the pipes with their submachine guns as it was common for prisoners to try and escape and they would hide in the drains. How on earth did he survive that? 48 bullets and not a single one hit him? Oh my goodness, I just cannot believe this story. After being certain that the group were long gone, Eddie went looking for help and came across a farmhouse. Luckily for him, the man spoke German and was willing to help him. He was given food and clothes and slept in a hay shed. The next morning he continued on, finding shelter in a cave and eating snails and slugs. But then Eddie saw something which he thought couldn't possibly be real, an American tank. And they rescued him and took him to hospital and he remained in a coma for one week. He had contracted cholera, typhoid and only weighed 28 kilograms. And his prognosis was not good. He was given a 65% chance of dying. He said, In that moment, I made a promise to God that if I lived, I would become an entirely new person. I promised that I would dedicate the rest of my life to putting right the hurt that had been done to the world by the Nazis. 
and that I would live every day to the fullest. If you hang on to hope, tomorrow will come. Where there is life, there is hope. And my friend, I lived. After being in hospital for six weeks, Eddie was well enough to leave and set off to Belgium to find his family. He went to the apartment where they had stayed after escaping Germany, but holding little hope that they would be there. He wasn't able to find any of his 100 relatives living all over Europe, so he was all alone. He said, Liberation is freedom, but freedom for what? To be alone? That's not life. Eddie had thoughts to take his life, as had so many Holocaust survivors. Entire families were wiped out, so they had nothing to live for. He said, But I had made a promise to myself and to God to try to live the best existence I could, or else my parents' death and all the suffering would be for nothing. So I chose to live. After the war, Eddie spent time at a canteen set up by a Jewish welfare society where Jewish refugees and soldiers would meet. And it was there that he found Kurt again, can you believe it? And he told Eddie the story of what had happened to him. After Eddie hid him away in the manhole, Russian soldiers found them and looked after them and the other escapees. Kurt was able to find his way back to Brussels and given the best gift of all of being reunited with his best friend, Eddie said, Now I had family again in Kurt. It was a sign to keep going, to not give up. So many times in my life, I had lost him, and then found him again. What a miracle. While they were so appreciative for the food and necessities that they were given, Eddie and Kurt didn't want to survive on charity. They wanted to find work to regain their dignity. Kurt managed to find a job as a cabinet maker, and Eddie found work making tools for the railway. Eddie rose to become the foreman of the factory. With the money they earned, they were able to put a deposit on a small flat and buy a car. Money wasn't an issue, but they still felt guilty that life was now so good for them. As seen so far, Eddie had received so many miracles during his time as a prisoner, and there was another one to come. A Jewish newspaper in Brussels had published the photos of refugees who were looking for their families, and it was there that Eddie saw his beloved sister's photo. Eddie just couldn't believe it. So she came to live with him and Kurt, he said. I thought I had lost my family, but now two of my favorite people in the world were alive. I could now start to rebuild my life. Then one day, Eddie found out about two Jewish girls who had jumped off a bridge to end their lives after having lost their families. But luckily, the bridge wasn't very high and they survived. Eddie wanted to help them and spoke to someone in the hospital about having the girls come and live with him and Kurt. And so they did, he said. Giving them a home and a place to heal was a way for Kurt and me to give back to say thank you to God for keeping us alive. Eddie kept in touch with the girls right throughout his life. Eddie and Kurt moved on with their lives. Kurt found a lady and got married, and Eddie too was introduced to a lady named Flora, and they married. She was one of the fortunate ones 
who never experienced the death camps. Her family welcomed Eddie wholeheartedly, and he came to have such fondness of his mother-in-law as if she were his own mother. But the beginning of their marriage was very difficult. Eddie didn't trust anyone. He had been so programmed to look out for danger and was reluctant to go out with Flora and meet other people. While she hadn't experienced what he had, she was still patient and loving, he said. I feel awful for my wife. I was just a depressed ghost, she was vivacious, with many friends, but I was quiet and closed off. However, all that changed instantly when Eddie became a father, he said. When I held my son, Michael, it was a miracle. In that one moment, my heart was healed, and my happiness returned in abundance. From that day on, I realized, I was the luckiest man on earth. This was the best medicine I could have. Eddie and his new family continued living in Belgium, but they saw the need to move elsewhere, as anti-Semitism was still rife. They were also required to keep reapplying to stay in Belgium every six months. Kurt had already moved to live in Israel, and Eddie's own sister had moved to Australia. So he applied to move to Australia and was accepted. It was now the year 1950, and they took a steamship to Sydney, which was paid for by a Jewish humanitarian organisation. Later, when he was able to, Eddie managed to pay back every cent of the cost of travelling to Australia. No one had ever paid back the money, which clearly shows Eddie's integrity. Eddie found a job as a medical instrument maker, and although their ultimate wish was to buy their own home, they just didn't have enough money at the time. However, Eddie again came into luck when a real estate agent was able to help him secure credit. After moving into their first home, they also experienced the joy of the birth of their second son. Eddie then changed jobs and started fixing cars, with his engineering again coming into good use. He eventually bought his own service station, building a successful business which employed a number of mechanics. He also had a showroom selling new cars. Eddie then wanted to change and decided to go for a real estate license and managed to open his own real estate agency. He and Flora worked there into their 90s until finally retiring. Eddie went on to say that he just couldn't believe the opportunities that had been available in Australia. Eddie's family continued to grow with the arrival of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Some survivors raised their children with hate, but Eddie tried to convince them that this negative thinking is not good for their children's lives. He said, If you are not free in your heart, don't take away your children's freedom. Throughout his life, Eddie had never told his sons about what had happened to him. It was just too painful. But then he began to ask himself, Why am I alive? And not all the others who died so terribly. But then I began to think that perhaps I was still alive because I had a responsibility to speak about it. And I had a duty to educate the world about the dangers of hate. 
Eddie then began meeting more and more survivors and they decided to create the Australian Association of Jewish Holocaust Survivors and Descendants. They also set up the Sydney Jewish Museum. After sharing his story in the media, Eddie was overwhelmed by the response he received. He soon became much sought after as a public speaker, giving lectures and even visiting schools. Once he was at a school and asked the children if any of them had told their mum that they had loved them. He then got a phone call from a student's mother who said, What have you done to my daughter? You made a miracle. She came home and put her arms around me and whispered in my ear, Mum, I love you. She's 17 years old. Normally, she argues with me. And Eddie was ultimately recognised for his work within the Jewish community by receiving an Order of Australia. And now, take a listen to this wonderful man yourself. This is Eddie Jaku. My dear new friends, <laughs> my name is Eddie Jaku and I'm standing in front of you today as a survivor of the Holocaust and a witness of the most tragic times in the history of mankind. I was a proud young German. I thought this was the best civilization that could be given to a young man like me. How wrong I was. On the 9th of November, 1938, I returned from boarding school where I had lived under a false name for five years because I was a Jew. I lived away from my family like an orphan, getting an education and under enormous pressure and fear that somebody could find out that I was not Walter Schleif, who I pretended to be. I was in great danger. On that fateful night, I had arrived home, but my family had gone in hiding, and I was alone. I went to bed with my dog close by. At 5 a.m. on the 10th of November, 1938, 10 Nazis broke down the door of our house. And what they did to me, I'm ashamed to tell you. It was so bad that I believed, Eddie, you're going to die today. After they made me witness the demolishing of our 200-year-old house and murdering my beloved dog, Lulu, who had tried to protect me. In front of my eyes, I lost my dignity, my freedom, and my faith in humanity. I lost everything I lived for. I was reduced from a man to being nothing. What happened to my country where I was born in? the country of my ancestors, the country which produced Schiller, Goethe, Beethoven, and Mozart. What had happened to my German friends who became murderers? At the time, none of us understood that Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass, when the fronts of Jewish-owned shops were smashed 
and the shops loaded, and homes and synagogues were set on fire, was only the beginning of the nightmare of much, much worse to come. That day, I was transported to my first concentration camp, Buchenwald, where I was kept with another 11,000 Jewish men for about five months. On the 2nd of May, 1939, I was released. My father picked me up and drove me to Aachen. After 10 hours driving, we made an arrangement with a smuggler to take us into Belgium. I spent two weeks there with my dad in an apartment until I was arrested by Belgian police as a German, not a Jew, and interned in a camp with 4,000 other Germans. On the 10th of May, 1940, the camp was liquidated. We split up in Dunkirk, and I continued on to Lyon. There I was arrested by French police and sent to Gers, a terrible camp with 6,000 Germans. After my internments and camps, I was finally transported to what became my hell on earth, Auschwitz. My parents and sister were also transported to Auschwitz, and I was never to see my parents again. I was lucky enough, managed to escape what became known as the Dead March, and I hid in a forest alone for many months before I was found by the American army. But I'm standing here today, happy man, who enjoys life with a wonderful wife and a beautiful family. I do not hate anyone. Hate is a disease which may destroy your enemy, but will also destroy you in the process. I am doing everything. I am doing everything I can to make this world a better place for everyone. And I implore you all to do your best too. Let us ensure that this terrible tragedy, the worst in the history, may never happen again and also will never ever be forgotten. After many years of hardship and hiding, on the 7th September 1945, after a long journey by train, I entered back into Belgium without any papers. Very shortly after that, I met and married my wife, Flor, to whom I have been married for 73 years. At that time, I was not a happy man. And did, and did not, and did not enjoy being amongst people. That was until our first son, Michael, was born. At that time, my heart was healed and my happiness returned in abundance. 
I made a promise that from that day until the end of my life, I promised to be happy, smile, be polite, helpful and kind. I also promised to never put my foot on German soil again. Today I stand in front of you, a man who has kept all those promises. My greatest happiness come from my family, my wife, two sons, Michael and Andre, my many grandchildren and great-grandchildren, who all bring such, so much joy. Today I teach and share happiness with everyone I meet. Happiness does not fall from the sky. It's in your hands. If you're healthy and happy, you're a millionaire. <laughs> happiness also brings good health to the body and mind and I attribute to my 99 years of health, mostly to the positive and happy attitude. <clears throat> One flower is my garden. One good friend is my world. Young people today forget to stop. They are constantly running. I don't know where they're running to. <laughs> you should take time to be happy and enjoy life. There is a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. I see good things in life. Invite a friend or family member for a meal. Go for a walk. Tomorrow will come. But first, enjoy today. I wonder how people exist without friendship, without people to share their secret hopes and dreams, to share good fortune or sad losses. In the sweetness of friendship, let there be laughter and sharing of pleasure. Good times made better and bad times forgotten due to the magic of friendship. For me, when I wake up, I'm happy because it is another day to enjoy. When I remember that I should have died a miserable death, but instead I'm alive, so I am aimed to help people who are down. I was at the bottom of the pit, so if I can make one miserable person smile, I'm happy. <laughs> Remember these words. Please do not walk in front of me. I may not be able to follow. Please do not walk behind me. I may not be able to lead. Just walk beside me and be my friend. I will end my talk with a wish from my heart to all your hearts. May you always have lots of love to share, lots of good health to spare, and lots of good friends that care. 
Thank you for giving me the privilege of speaking to you today. Thank you. Eddie finally told his life story in his autobiography, which was published in 2020 at the age of 100, called The Happiest Man on Earth. Not only did he live a long life, but so too did his wife. I've seen a photo of them together at his book launch, and then Eddie died a year later at the age of 101, and his wife died shortly after at the age of 98. What a story and what a book. The best book I have ever read. How he got himself out of so many situations. His brilliant ingenuity. And as I was reading the book, I thought it was fiction. How could all this happen to one man? There are countless Holocaust movies out there, but don't you think his story should be made into a movie? It's just too unbelievable to be true. But it shows the importance of education. That was how he managed to stay alive. What a remarkable book. I highly recommend it to you. And I would also like to share with you how I came across this book. I just happened to be in a bookshop and totally by accident, I came across a book about World War II, which fitted the theme of my podcast perfectly. So I decided that I was going to do that story on my podcast. But then I came across Eddie's book as well. So I bought both of the books and I definitely planned to cover the first book first, but then after reading Eddie's remarkable story, I thought I would cover his book first, although there is no relation to schools, although you can say that his story is about the power of education, and I guess there is some crime in the story because what the Nazis did was certainly criminal. So in the next episode, you will hear the story in the other book. And to end this episode, here is a final quote from Eddie himself. It's hard to tell my story, but I ask myself, what will happen when we are all gone? Will our story fade out of history? So I go on telling my story, to anyone who wants to know, about the Holocaust. If I get through to even one person, it is worth it. And I hope that is you, my new friend. I hope this story goes, with you. Bye for now, and remember to be, a good apple.